Hello and welcome to Courage and Valour. I'm the series producer, Dave Homewood. Unfortunately, due to other commitments, our original series narrator, Jason McCorders, has had to pull back from the project. I want to thank him very much for the great work and assistance that he has given me with the series so far. This means, I'm afraid, that from here on in, I will be the series narrator. But of course, it's not about me or my voice. It's the voices of the World War II veterans who really matter in this series. I must say how proud I am of this series, and how pleased I am that after years of work tracking down veterans, recording their stories and editing them together, that I can present them to you all to listen to and to learn from. I always appreciate any feedback that you can give, so please don't hesitate to make any comments or write anything that comes to mind about the episodes, either on the episode pages of the Courage and Valor website, or on the Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash New Zealanders at War. You'll find a link to the Facebook page on the website. And they took us up to Casino. I think it might, they might have wanted to give us a look at Casino and that uh, it was uh, uh, expected to be uh, a fairly hard nut to crack right from the start. And I'm glad they didn't let us miss out on anything. Part 2. The Courage and Valor podcast is the story of ordinary New Zealanders who served and fought to liberate Italy from fascist and Nazi rule during World War II. We pick up the story from Episode 4, joining the veterans again, just following the massive bombing and artillery barrage that flattened the ancient town of Casino. When uh, the bombing uh, had finished and we'd moved back to our positions, we saw three German paratroopers walking through the minefield in this flat. There was mines there. There were stakes about this high and they had things like uh, insulation cups and a power... and they, they, they had charges of uh, explosive in them and they had a trip wire and that was, they, they were mines. Uh, about that high and, <clears throat> and we saw these blokes walking through them in, in our direction but they didn't seem to be heading for anywhere in particular they were bomb happy really and I picked up a bloody rifle and I was shooting at the bastards plunging fires very very difficult you've got to aim below the bloke well I, I fired Two or three rounds, and the boss stopped me in a bloody hurry. Pat, you can't do that. Those bloody unarmed bloody Germans. I said, they're still bloody Germans. They're the bastards that killed uh, so many of our bloody mates. And I was bloody wild. 
Uh, but he stopped. Anyway, we we went down and captured them. Well, they came up to us. They couldn't get much sense out of them. They were very young. One of them wouldn't have been 20. <coughs> oh, and they were arrogant. And they strolled up as though they'd just come out of a picture theatre or somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they were sort of dazed uh, as well. And uh, we searched them. And one, one, the young one, he had a postcard-sized photo of Hitler in his pocket. One of our blokes said, oh, that's useless, but <coughs> put it on the ground and screwed it with his ear. And this arrogant, bloody paratrooper burst into tears. Yeah. You know, it was so bloody well ingrained with the propaganda about this beloved leader. Yeah. When the dust settled and night fell, the infantry of the 2nd New Zealand Division were ordered to move up into the rubble that had been the town, with the aim of flushing out and driving out the remaining German occupiers. When we went into Casino, and um, we went in a bloody dark, or a terrible place, oh, you, it's just bad enough walking around the bloody daylight, it's all just bloody rubble, and, and of course the, uh, the little the repeater river, that was all bloody everywhere, going everywhere. And uh, we went forward in the dark, and if we'd have gone there, say, night before or some bloody thing, and just looked at it, the smell of it and all was enough. You got no idea what it was bloody like, you know. And uh, didn't, we didn't know, we went up there in the bloody dark and didn't know where we were going or what was happening. Sometimes bloody sparks would fly this way, and sometimes sparks would fly that way. We were going to be the reserve the second wave that went into the town. Down below our positions was a road leading in. Highway 6 came straight up and into the town and this road came in from the east and I think from memory it was called Caruso Road. Um, and that's where we attacked later in the day along that road and into the town um, and uh, I remember on one occasion we got held up with colossal uh, mortar fire. So, um, yeah, we moved uh, into the village and uh, at one stage we, uh, things got so hot that um, I said to the boys, there was part of a building there and there was a hole uh, in the base of it, about so high and so wide, and I said to the boys, hop in there. Um, the mortars were coming down so flat out we just couldn't have got through. So we got into this, all of us, and someone hung a ground sheet over the entrance, and we all lit a fag. <laughs> Believe me, a fag was a, a great uh, morale booster. Um, and this, it, as it turned out, was a crypt for a nunnery, and it was full of bones, um, the human bones, and, and that's the Italians. Um, a lot of their cemeteries have a great big wall around, a high wall, uh, and they, they bury their dead in the ground, 
and then at some later stage they take them up again and clean them all up and I actually have seen them scrubbing uh, scrubbing the bones and getting everything clean and then they just put them in a little niche in the wall and they can use the ground again I guess. Anyhow that's their practice and uh, uh, so some of those cemeteries weren't nice to be near after they'd been hit, uh, believe me. Um, yeah, we, we finally uh, got to a place um, down almost right through the village of Casino. There was a, on the top road that ran along and then down Route 6, there were three hotels, Hotel de Roses and the Hotel Continental, and they were very heavily fortified, and they had tanks right inside. They backed them in through the back, and they were sitting inside. And as infantry, we just couldn't get near them. Um, and with no tanks, you see, the, the road leading, Route 6 leading into Casino was elevated because a lot of the country floods and the Germans had dammed the river to make it even worse. So the bombing obliterated parts of the road and the tanks, I remember seeing guys on a bulldozer um, just before we started to move in trying to fill these bomb holes in to get the tanks across. Uh, and, and you know, they were getting mortared and, and shell fire and so on. And, uh, crikey, those guys! Someone would jump off and go and hide over the edge, and then get on again, and so on. So, and even when the tanks did get in, I think one or two got in finally. Um, I remember one was burning. I took a wounded man back to the RAP, which was in a big, one of the few buildings left standing. Uh, and there was a tank parked not far away and, and a mortar had gone right through the turret. And, you know, a tank will burn for a week. Um, they catch fire, they're full of ammo and stuff and probably lots of aluminium and that sort of thing. And it was still smoking away. So, uh, yeah, we didn't have any tank support. And we, had, we also got into a, a Sherman tank and we got the Browning machine guns out of it. But when I got into the tank, there was five blokes dead in the tank. A shell, a mortar bomb went right through the hole. Killed five of them. Anyhow, so when we got there, we got the guns out, and by the time it was getting daylight, so we'd stay there with the dead blokes till it got dark and we'd sort of get out. Because the Germans at the casino, they were looking right down at us. That's what happened. And uh, Hotel de Roses is in against the bank and, and the, uh, the uh, High Ray 6 come up like that and then went around like that. And that was the way to Rome. And Hotel de Roses was there and old Jerry was in there. And of course he was up on Castle Hill and all that. And uh, oh, it was terrible. You were bloody slide down and side on your ass and all this. So we put an attack in, or an attack we attacked over, and there was uh, 16 platoon and us. Uh, and our, our officer, we had a, they come up from, we were going in here, 
and they come up from there about, well, about nine of them. And old Jason, he was our officer. He was a good officer. Uh, he still is a two-bob watch, you know. He'd laugh and he'd, he'd, anyway, he had this uh, elephant gun, he called it. It's a very uh, Yankee bloody thing. It's a very hefty looking little gun. And uh, uh, actually, he, sh he, sh he shot a bloody, uh, a bloody doctor. But you didn't know he's got a doctor in the dark, but we found out after he was a doctor. And uh, how many prisoners did we take there? How many prisoners? We, we took there. Yeah. And then our good sergeant, I was a lance sergeant, only like a half-cart sergeant. I was next to go up, you know, if he... Uh, and, and he... He took the bloody prisoners out. Well, he shouldn't have taken the bloody prisoners out. And that left me in, more or less in the bloody control. And he shouldn't... He bloody beat it, the bastard, you know, and, and took those prisoners out. Well, he doesn't need a sergeant to take the prisoners out. And he, he beat it. Anyway, that's just by the way. So we're there... No, poor old Alec, he got killed on Shakem. Tim's Alec, he's a good fellow, old Alec. He wouldn't have a bloody flea. Anyway, we're there, we're looking out, and the road ran along. Oh, the length of this bloody room. We were there looking out the window and that. And we had another sergeant, Jeff. He was bloody useless. He wouldn't have harmed a flea, and, he's just, and he was in, down in the bloody back. And I was trying to trying to get somebody control and find out and give us shooting thing and all 16 platoon, they were all laying on the bloody open there. We shouldn't have been there. We shouldn't have bloody been there. We should have either gone up that side of the hill or gone back. Yeah, we shouldn't have been there. I closed into that. Anyway, uh, I, I'd, I'd had two or three goes at these fellas. The old Jerry, they were going along there because that's how they used to get into there. And... Uh, then they really started to get fair dinkum in the bloody morning. They knew that where they had us, because they were up higher and they're looking right down on six. Whole sixteen platoon surrendered. Here, yeah, all our sixteen platoon surrendered. And uh, anyway, so I, I was trying to get Jeff up out of this. He was in under the bloody thing. I was trying to get him up to lead us, and, and you know. Get this cracking. Anyway, I said, well, Jeff, I said, we'll have to get out of this. We, we've got to get out. And I said, because Jock had the the radio and you always had to get the radio out. I said, we've got to get the bloody radio out. Because 16 Baton, they had an officer, Ray Bats, And yet I thought he was pretty good, but he, he camaraded. Anyway, they, they camaraded to a man. And uh, so Jerry was giving us the higgery, you know. And so I run out the back and into the river. I was bloody wet through from the night before and all that across there. And I ran out and uh, I said, Jeff, you know, uh, well, what's going to happen in that? I said, well, he said, well, you try and get the, get the radio out. And I ran out up to, through the bloody river when I saw the river. Got across, and I got Jock because he was the radio man. And uh, a fellow called old Leo, he was a farmer from over Tiamuta, old Leo. He, you wouldn't know him to bloody flea, old Leo. You know. He's a nice valley, old fellow, old Leo. And uh, 
Anyway, uh, I ran out. By this time, Jerry's, oh, I hear the, hear, the, hear, the, hear the garage coming. And they were all out there. They were shooting right, left and bloody centre. And uh, uh, 16 platoon camaraded, they all camaraded. There's a whole bloody platoon, about 20 and nearly 30 of them, you know. They all camaraded. And I'm out on the bank, and old Jerry let bloody fly. And we had a fair way to go, and the bloody opened us and wonder we got it, because he fired everything in the bloody world at us. And I'm, old Leo, old, old Leo says, I'm stuck, bro, I'm stuck. I said, don't you bloody stop, Tiller, don't you bloody stop. And we got back anyway with the bloody radio and that. And uh, so it's all over. And I got shot through the bloody neck up in that thing. Oh, come out down there. And went in there and come out down there. I tell you what, if I'd have stayed a bit bloody taller, it'd have got me through here, wouldn't it? You know? Yeah. Oh, oh, my pack was gone, all shot away. You know, the bloody, bloody whole, uh, bloody bullets just all, all come across here. Yeah. Yeah, bloody. Oh, I'd have copped the whole bloody bag if I'd have been a bit higher, eh? Or if I'd have been on a bit higher ground or something. You know? What's the B to B, eh? And Alec got, he got shot. He's, he's killing, killed our poor old Alec. Yeah. So it was our bloody, and of course, oh, Jason, our officer, he, he got he got three through each bloody arm, eh? Yeah. And we needed him. We needed him, you know? Yeah, we, we didn't, didn't go bloody well at all. And I knew we could do better, you know? Yeah. But oh, Jason, he, he got, but he, the night before, he he got stuck in with his elephant gun, I think, and he he did a few of them bloody cold. I think we took nine there, and I think old Jason get, got cracking with this bloody elephant gun, he called it. And the funny thing, the next bloody morning he copped it, eh? So we lost him, and, and we needed him, because he was our officer. Because uh, Jeff was bloody useless, he proved that. And bugger me, he got the DCM. He got the bloody DCM. They had to, and uh, uh, actually it was between him and me who got it. He got it because he's senior. Yeah, didn't worry me, but anyway. Uh, we got him out anyway. We went up the stretcher bearers, went up to the flag and brought him out. He, he died, he left, lived about eight years old. Yeah. But he, oh, he's the wrong man for a bloody sergeant. Yeah. Clem Hollies was a platoon commander with 21 battalion. He and his men were tasked with attacking right into the heart of the town. Uh, Clem Hollies was our officer, Clementine. We used to call him my darling Clementine. Charlie was my sergeant. I was a lieutenant in the casino. Charlie was my sergeant. We, were, we went in the casino and the uh, worst part there was getting in and out of the darn place. The, uh, we, uh, of course, we should never have done it because when you think about it, the casino was a complete, complete and utter pile of rubble, nothing but. And they said to us, we were to attack a German strong point called the Continental Hotel, right down the end of the famous Highway 6, you know, the road to Rome. And they, they said, now your axis of advance is Highway 6. Oh, you couldn't find Highway 6, it was completely buried. Anyway, we got near this Continental Hotel, the, Two forward platoons were uh, 
Uh, I was in. I had a, my platoon was in reserve. They were overrun. They 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 had a go, but they they and uh, most of them were taken prisoner. Then the, they turned because we were fighting these paratroopers, and of course they they had a go at us then. But fortunately, we got into a house and we could. We held them off. We we had all our brown guns firing. They did, never never got us. We're there for eleven days. Yeah, and the only reason the Germans didn't find us were in the ladies' toilet. But we left the door open a little bit, accidentally, and the Germans looked in and saw the door. They had nobody here. Went away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and in the house we were in. The Germans were up top, we were on the bottom. They couldn't get down and we couldn't get up. They just stayed there till we moved out. An interesting thing happened here that we, <clears throat> at this stage, there was a bit of a lull just after this, and we saw German stretcher bearers with their marks going around picking up their, their um, wounded in front of us, about 50 yards out, I suppose. And then we could see in front of us about some way, two of our own fellows were struggling there, lying there from the forward platoon. And I remember saying, saying to a, <laughs> a stretcher bearer, a fellow called Doc Tainton, I said to Tainton, come on, we'll go out and get these fellows. And Doc said, I'm not going, boss, I'm not going. I said, oh, well, who can't? So I spoke Ernie Pomeroy, he's a hard case. He was a shepherd from the central Otago, really, a real backcountry, you know, New Zealander. And Ernie said, I'll, I'll come, boss. So anyway, we went out and we, we got these two fellows in. And while I was leading up, we did indicate that we had no um, Red Cross things to put on. We took our tin hats off and showed we were unarmed because they could have shot us, but they observed us. They didn't shoot at us. And uh, anyway, we, we got these. And the, the, the horrible thing about it, one, one of these fellows had been very badly wounded in the stomach. He was a real mess. And believe it or not, he, he lived, and the other fellow, he didn't look, he died. One of them died and one of them lived, but they were, you'd think it would have been the other fellow. Yeah, but anyway, so we, we got them back. Two platoons that got taken prisoner, and only nine of us came out of casino, out of the company. Nine of us, and I was one of them. And um, when we came back, and in there, there's a bloke said from the South Island, a photograph, I had to go back and show the brigadier how we got there. I was a sergeant by that time, and show the brigadier how we got there. The bloke that was with me got a military medal. Ernie Pomeroy got a military medal. Meanwhile, 24 Battalion also entered the town. Among them were Harry Hopping, Colin Murray, Norm Harris, Bob O'Brien and Galvin Garmansway. Who we hear from here. So we watched the bombing, and uh, late in the when the bombing finished, late in the afternoon, they took us round to scramble up through the rubble. They bombed casino, and we went into casino itself. After that, went down and line all the 24th Battalion, I think. Uh, at that stage, we thought we thought we were the only ones there, mind you. Uh, big company in Liverpool, we thought we were the only troops there, but uh, mind you, there were a lot of others there too. Went in there in the afternoon, we laid up 
uh, at night time, ready for the attack first thing in the morning. We laid up in a, in a area and put out. They had our packs on and sort of dozed off. And first thing in the morning, we were called out by the sergeant, lined up. First thing he said was, "Fix bayonets." hadn't fixed payments before. So they said we're going to attack around and try to cut off Route 6, which was sort of around the bottom of, of Casino Town. So where we go, we'd only got a few hundred yards, if that, and the Germans let fly at us with Tommy guns and, and uh, Brent and their Spandaus. In about the first two or three minutes, about four jokers had been hit. Most of them were wounded. One chap was killed. Uh, one chap got shot through both uh, parts of his uh, bottle. Two, two bullets went straight through. And uh, we just started into this rubble. We hadn't gone far. And he poked our head around the corner of some rubble there, and we are met with a machine gun fire. And the voice come, we can't go this way, sir. And he says, why not? Machine gun fire. He says, when has one gun held up an army? He said, now, sir. So he says to the, the sergeant, Rodder, you go first. Just around the corner is this big bomb crater. So he ran first, round the edge of the bottom crater and the machine gun <coughs> bullets were picking up at his heels. I was the next man to go. And boy, did I go fast. Right around there and I jumped over a wall and jumped right on top of a dead person. Next man to go, didn't go far, he got a bullet straight through the head. Can't go that way, come back. Come back, you fellas. I said, now that's, that's brains for you, isn't it? We attacked, and I was, on the, I was number two on the Bren. Number one Bren gun over shot as we attacked, as we went in further. And uh, I, I took over the Bren then. And we eventually got held up in a broken down Aitai house. I presume it was a house but it was flooded, all the bottom of it was flooded. It had no roof on it, but it still had the top floor. So we bored a hole through the, broke a hole through the floor and got into the top part of the building and made ourselves. And we got pinned down there by the, by the Germans who were there. Uh, they used to, they used to try and fight us and we tried to fight them. I was there with a machine gun, with my machine gun all hooked up in the top building. Used to fire through the through the top window at their positions. Actually, it was a funny thing there was that uh, they were there, but you couldn't see them. They could see us, but we couldn't see them. They were on the top top positions, uh, so any movement that we made, we they were at us but we actually couldn't see them. Uh, there was a lot of sniper fire. Uh, there was one, one German chap there that we sort of 
we hadn't actually taken him prisoner, but he was sitting in the building next door and we tried to convince him to come over to us, but he wouldn't come over. We put some shots over his head and he still wouldn't come over. He just sat there all huddled up and he sat there all day. He eventually took off, he must have taken off during, during the night because in the morning he'd gone. Bob Sanders was a signalman, a dangerous job in casino. I was in the, I was out attached to the 23rd Battalion, signalling platoon, and uh, I was on headquarters uh, on the 23rd headquarters company. I can't remember it was called the 28th set or what it was called now. Uh, normally if, uh, if you're carrying that, somebody else would be carrying the uh, batteries, batteries for them. And uh, if there was two of you, okay, one carried the uh, the uh, Normally there's only about three cigs, you know, one be sleeping and just turn off and, and then the other one be on and the other one's just going off and, you know, that sort of thing. There was one there all the time. And uh, and if you're moving, you're either carrying the batteries, and uh, the big batteries, you know, heavy ones too, and uh, uh, or else you had the, uh, the set, yeah. We finally got right up to the edge of the botanical gardens. And it moved into an old rubble of a house there. The first thing to do is put a picket on each window. We just got there, hadn't been there long, and a German appeared right in front of one of our pickets. And he nearly died of fright. And of course the German got away. And he ran into the house, house next door. And... Uh, that house was full of Germans. Anyhow, we had a lot of fun. You couldn't dare not move in the daytime. The next morning, one of our boys got a bit cheeky and decided to have a peep, and he got a bullet through the face. It didn't kill him, but um, so we, we had to be very quiet. One of the things, you can see, we were in a building. We got into a building, and uh, we were on the ground floor, just got in at night time into this building, and uh, it was like headquarters got in, and I was a signal, one of the signalers for them. And uh, we found out that, worked out that there was Jerry's in the cellar down below, and there was Jerry's in the up above, you know. So we, we, my one thing I had to do was signal out to get to the artillery to, to you know, see if they could fall down the building and and uh, as we ran out uh, to, to get out and that the first German was running in behind us to get out too they knew what was going to happen you know uh, they were there for quite a long time two or three days uh, I looked out the window one morning here's a, two Germans and a, and a wounded, wounded German they were carrying and he had his leg blown off and they were carrying him side to side I said, Sergeant, what do I do with these? I had a hand grenade in my hand. I said, do I drop, them on, drop it on there? He said, well, it's over to you, boy. He said, well, it depends how you feel. I thought, well, here we are. A soldier with his leg blown off, coming back to hospital. So I put the hand grenade back in my pouch and left them be. Raymond Kerr was the Divisional Signals Sergeant. Because you couldn't lay lines, or tried to lay lines, but uh, one of the boys' linemen got his arm blown off, and, 
another one was injured and trying to lay, fix the forts during night time because that's the only time you could move. And another time I lay up mending wires. That was a, 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 you had to sort of run along with the wire in your hand sort of to make sure one hand behind to fast and tight in case it broke, you know, that sort of stuff and had these pliers and they'd try and uh, mend the wires. But it was pretty hopeless in lots of it because you don't know where the end was, you know, you're groping around in the dark and trying to get it. The one time there, was on the radio, and uh, the uh, the Jerry a uh, Jerry piped in. Hello, Tommy. Could could you alter the the, uh, the uh, oh, I forget what to call it now. Uh, like I had it at a certain uh, height, tent. Uh, oh, I forget now what they call it. And uh, I had it that, but he just couldn't quite make everything right. Could you make it a bit better for me? You know, so you, you you just shot away drip wet for your life, you know. And uh, same with uh, you connect up something and they'd already connected it into the wire down further too, you know. And you think you've done a good job, well I've got this I got this bloody thing fixed up at last, you know. And everyone said, Okay and the, the jury jury would say, Yeah, it's fine, Tommy, good <laughs> Oh hell <laughs> You snipped the wire and it went for your life because you knew there was a stomp coming over. And you could hear them at night time in particular. they just wind around this thing, this, for the, send the mortars over, and there was about five or six mortars, and they just wind around the next one, and, and you had to get out of it, you know. Yeah. Yes, uh, I lost a lot of coppers over there. Anyway, the night we were going into Casino, into this position, the first night in, all the buildings over there were painted white, sort of white, and we were taken around the front of the building. And as we were just moving ourselves to go into the building, up goes a German flare. And we're all silhouetted against the wall like an Egyptian freeze. Whatever position you're in, you just froze. And there's all these big shadows, you know, perfect. All those guys on the wall, and my horse. Everybody stood there waiting for it, and then it was never even spotted. <clears throat> At night time, there's two big logs lying outside our old house there, and we, we had to go out there each night with a with a machine gun and sort of keep watch. And I was out there quite a lot. Uh, we, no, we had no food. We were living on what rations we had, which was uh, hardtack, uh, which was the army ration, hard biscuit, and a bit of cho hard chocolate, black chocolate. Lived on there for a couple of days. Yes, it rained so much there that the big bomb crater just outside our house was full of water. And some jokers wanted some water to have a wash. So they found an old tin and a, a bit of a rod and a cord or something and tied this tin onto it to lay it down to get the water. As soon as they poked it out, it was riddled with machine gun fire. So, no water. So, uh, <clears throat> we weren't very happy about that lot. Playing cards one day, because we had nothing to do but just keep watch living on our nerves mainly. 
playing cards one day and I was sitting there with my feet up against the wall and uh, playing cards and a, a shell come over straight into our house. The nose of the shell poked through just above my feet and it didn't go off. Uh -huh. So uh, it is still there when we left the house. We were only there another two or three days. And of course we were dead pleased to get away, get away out of that house. And eventually we still had the wounded with us and the officer called for our volunteers to take the wounded out back to the RAP. Well there's no volunteers, I can imagine you didn't volunteer for very much when you're in the army. Because usually they said you you knew. Anyhow, nobody volunteered so Eventually I said, okay, I'll go. So they said, and it was night time, black, they had a cup, they had about three or four stretches, with stretchy bearers, and I was given a Tommy gun and to take them back. Now it was a blackness, the blackest, blackness, I don't know, there's no moon, nothing, couldn't see a thing. And the officer said, see that star over there, Bobby? I said, yes sir. And he said, you head straight for there, he said. He said, you he said and you'll hit headquarters. So away we go, and uh, the place was full of bomb holes, full of water. So I was playing, I was taking a direct line, I wasn't trying to dodge, I couldn't see where I was. So I went straight through the craters, there was water up to a waist. We were carrying these three jokers more or less on our shoulders and we eventually got back to headquarters with our wounded and uh, they said when I got back there I could stay there until the troops come out. So okay, I'm there and uh, I had a, had a feed and when went back to help some wounded and there was some Maoris there. A big Maori officer come out, he had lost part of his foot and he was sort of limping along with his rifle and he said to me, he said, give me a hand, soldier. So I, I gave him a shoulder and managed to get him back to the, to the doctor. Actually the, the RAP was in the old, um, where, the, where the nuns used to be and it was sort of in a, in a basement there. So this is where the all headquarters was, the RAP, the Six and all those people. So I managed to get him back into there and then uh, the Indians came to take the wounded out. The Indians came with their, they were in charge of the, uh, take the, the wounded out to hospital uh, and they picked up Macabre who was shot through the bum, and uh, he said to us, he said, don't leave me, Hoppy. I said, oh, I'll uh, help take, go out to the ambulance with you. And uh, a sergeant, old Rocky, Rocky was there, and we, we went out with him, and these Indians were putting, going to put them in the ambulance. All of a sudden, the Nibberwolf has opened up. Those shells and that flying, the Indians took off. They weren't staying around, so they, they just dropped, dropped the uh, 
the cobbler and uh, the cobbler yelled out, don't leave me, don't leave me. So we threw our bodies across the crossing and we said, Blackie, we won't leave you. And so we lay there while, until the stomp was over. There was bits of shell flying everywhere. The ambulance got hit. Uh, there was a big hole through it. And eventually the Indians came back. They put him in the ambulance, drove off, and I came back to base. Our biggest worry was, um, it wasn't a worry actually, it was going back for rations. Most jokers dodged it. I went back about four or five times or more, more than that. And um, going back one night, I see about four, three or four Marys sitting there on the side. As we went past, I said, said G'day boys, here you going back? Yeah. And on the way back, they're still sitting there. So I stopped and looked at them and they're all dead. There must have been a shell, concussion or something. Barry sat down for a rest. And uh, there you are. That's what happened. Next thing I know is the officers were going to take a party up to the boys up the front. And we taking the food up to them. They haven't had any food. We want somebody to lead us up. And Hopping, you're the only one that knows where they are. So next thing I know, I'm in charge of a party to, to take up some food up to the up to the boys up the front. There's about uh, four or five, I think, were chaps with Dixies and that, and and uh, I, we started off there, and uh, everything was quiet. A few shells flying around. We're going through. I more or less knew, knew the way up, and all of a sudden I look up and I see somebody moving there, and I said to the boys beforehand, if I say lie down and keep quiet, you juggers keep quiet. Don't let those Dixies or anything like that make any noise. So they we lay there for quiet, and I look up, and it's a New Zealander, New Zealand officer. And I find out later that it's Bob O'Brien. He's wandering around in half by no band's land. So we, uh, we didn't disturb him, we just, I just let him go on his way at that stage and we made our way back up the front and contact with the boys up there, they were pleased to see the food. Well there was a carrying party came into Casino every night and I wouldn't say they had a very good, very nice job because that Route 6 was a murderous bit of a road and one man that I knew uh, this fellow, he, he, the rest of the time he had quite prominent eyes and he, this night he came in he had the handle of the two water cans in his hand. The water cans had been blown out of his hand but his hands had hung on to the handles and his eyes were literally sticking out and he, he, was, and he couldn't let go of his handles, he was sort of locked on them, you know. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't envy those blokes that job, we were, we were safe, we were in the town. <laughs> Yeah. We were taking a hot meal in the in the Dixies. The cooks had hooked up a hot meal, like vegetables and meat and that sort of stuff. And uh, took that up to them and and the jokers went up with me. They took off after we'd got there, so I stayed up there with the boys and, until they come out. And uh, we, the gang that was with me just dumped the food into the and you never seen those jokers go back to headquarters so quick.
that often uh, I was left there with them. And I had a, a, a map, of, an aerial map of casino divided into squares and each square would be numbered. And the Germans had a, a it was reported to be a, a Captain German tank in the, about 400 yards away and at night time they would dig it out of the rubble and they would mortar us while they were doing it. So the mortar shell coming in making a noise would try to hide the noise of their shoveling. And periodically it'd be a bit of a mess and you hear the shovel go clink clink. So in the morning I would get the order from the platoon officer to suggest HD 32, I think it was, from memory. That's all I had to do, get on the platoon radio and suggest HD 32. And that would bring the big stuff away back into the shell a spot where the tank was and we'd bury it. And the next next night they'd dig it out. And they'd just go every day. And uh, yeah, something else crossed my mind. I used to go I was I was on the radio on the hour every hour. And we had a four word call sign call sign like Dog, Baker, Charlie, and before Dog, Baker, Charlie, something. Anyway, uh, I was the last man on on the net, but the Germans were getting ahead of me. But instead of saying Dog, Baker, Charlie, they would go Baker, Dog, Charlie. They get it mixed, so we knew straight away that. And I'd go down to company headquarters every every night to have a yarn with the radio operator and sort of discuss the day's, the day's events. And that was good for me because it got me out of the house even though I'd have wandered out <laughs> through the wreckage and down to company headquarters and have a yarn with a few different blokes. So eventually, later, our wireless was out. It was in contact with nobody and they eventually pulled us back from there and we all went back to headquarters and we stayed at the Continental Hotel which was bobbing out to glory and there was no facilities there and we, we lived in a... Al Platoon lived in a... where they used to make the bread, it's a great big oven just about half the size of this room we used to crawl in there, there at night time to sleep and then we would take up our positions in the daytime that, was, that went on for a little while and one day we were back in the, build, in the building of building and I had my brand uh, gun all cleaned out and laying on out and cleaning it and all of a sudden, sudden I had a nature's call so I get up and go out the back and while I'm away the whole building fell down, the whole top wall collapsed and about three or four jokers, one joker killed there was two or three buried there we had to dig out and when I had to look for my brand gun, there it was, with a heap of rubble all over it. So luckily I got a nature's call and and that was one of the one of the times that I missed being wounded or, or knocked out. Anyhow, next day we do attack uh, at that stage the uh, tanks came in, there was about three or four tanks came in and we did an attack 
back up to the line where we were before. Uh, we didn't get very far. Most of the tank got, uh, Germans had a, an 88 up on the hill and they took those tanks out. Uh, so a lot of our jokers got wounded. One joker lost his arm. One chap I quite remember, he had a, had a pack on his back which had our um, bombs in and our smoke bombs and they got hit and it all blew up on his back, got his back. I've seen it. he came home, he got wounded. There's about four or five jokers there got wounded. Uh, our, uh, our little chap that was on the uh, RAP, he was beside me, we were walking up behind the tank and he got hit and the tank ran over him. And so that was the end of him. Uh, we, got, we eventually got pulled back there after the tanks had all been knocked out. We were, didn't make hardly any progress at all. And so that was the end of that shake. So we went back to our position, back to the Continental Hotel where we were. And a few days later, we did another attack. And uh, just uh, we went out to put, take, took a patrol out. And the captain of, the, of uh, B Company was there with us and he said, we're going to move up there. And we moved up and I was with him and about four or five others with us with the patrol. And the Germans just let go at us with their, with their machine guns. And uh, I was down behind, behind some rubble there and you hear the bullets flying over your head. And the captain, the captain he had some uh, smoke bombs there and he threw those over and uh, we eventually made our way back to the, to the uh, our position. You see now, I, uh, they tried to feed the troops with, by airdrops, like that company that was isolated up on the hill. Yeah, yeah. You see now, well, I, got, I managed to get the troops, get the rest. They tried to supply them by air, if you remember. Yeah, 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 but, I remember that. A lot of them fell and the Germans got them. The Germans got them, but I took the ration party up there. Yeah. I got all these blokes lined up and it was just a matter of... We were climbing... It was virtually that steep climbing up to get to where these troops were. This was C Company of our battalion was isolated there. I had all these blokes behind me, and I, this is happening around about 11 o'clock at night, and pitch black, and I'm just getting over the top of this rocky feature, and there's this bloody thing going like this at me. Oh, shit, what the hell's that? My bloody heart was going to hit. <laughs> when it didn't hear, I was hitting the rocks. It was going like that. And anyhow, everybody behind had... had Nearly half a dozen blokes or more behind me, and they had all the rations for these troops. What the hell's holding us up? <laughs> I couldn't put back that I was too bloody scared to go any further. <laughs> I thought, well, I've just got to make the move. Anyhow, I thought, well, okay, it's you or me, boy. I started to move, and you know what it was? It was part of a smoke shell. The smoke shell uh, is the luminous, like you've got a new watch. That on the inside of the shell when it, when it splinters up and it lodges under a bit of rock and that was the moon was shining on it you see and of course all I know is I'm 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 hanging on a bloody rock there and 
got to find these blokes and everybody behind me, all these blokes hanging on behind me with all the rest. What the bloody hell holding us up? And I couldn't say I'm too bloody scared to move. <laughs> but anyhow, I thought, well, somebody's got to go. So I moved and then I realised what it was. Like I just come moved forward and this thing going like this at me, it was uh, the moon shining onto this luminous of a part of a shell that had broken. Anyhow, they went bloody crook at me afterwards when, I, when we were banging and holding, holding them up for so long. I said, well, I was the bloke who had to make the decision. <laughs> there wasn't a bloody hole popped in there. My bloody heart was going to... But that was how we got the first lot of rations up to them after that. They dropped from more by air. But it's... Uh, it, it, uh, it, talking about it now, I can even just about come out in a sweat. I think of that, that particular occasion. But uh, there's no big heroes in the front line. I mean, there's a lot of frightened boys. I mean, <coughs> yeah, in the finish, this company that was cut off, um, their position was hopeless there. So they broke out. Um, the doctor had gone, our battalion doctor, Doc Borry, had gone up under a white flag to uh, retrieve the wounded. And, and the Germans let them do that. Um, but then the rest of them, of course, were left there. Um, but then they broke out during the hours of darkness, uh, and a whole lot of them got out in one piece. They were doing no good there. They, they were just no, they were, the position was hopeless. They were virtually isolated there, mm. I mean. Totally they, hopeless. They had to say they had to try to supply them by air. And they, they missed the whole lot, and that was how I had to take this party of this food up to them. But uh... life in casino wasn't the best. Uh, we had to contact. I was asked to contact the house next door to us, away to the left across the garden, where Chris Perkins was in there. And they were laying mines in front of us one night. And of course, the Jerry's, they got very jittery, putting up flares all the time. Uh, we'd lived under smoke. Um, they kept just lobbing smoke shells in our artillery to give us some cover because we were only, you know, 30 yards from Germans. On one night in Casino, the opposing, the uh, a platoon alongside us uh, was attacked by a fighting patrol and uh, they radioed for help because each platoon had a radio. So I took a party of oh, half a dozen or so guys over there in the dark to help them out and uh, uh, there was bullets and stuff flying in all directions from in the house and outside as well. Um, so uh, when we got near I shouted out uh, those inside to sort of hold their fire and they said well if you move around this building and clean them out but you know that was easier said than done because it was pitch black and totally foreign territory to us uh, so anyhow I started off with the platoon these these section behind me and um, just straight in front of me was a, a German Spandau uh, machine gunner lying down and 
he couldn't see us, it was so dark, but he opened up and uh, um, I, we, we killed him. But um, uh, I thought he'd hit me, he hit one of the boys back behind me, put bullets all through my clothing. He had scorch marks all across my body when, <laughs> where the bullets had sort of grazed me. But nothing serious, you know, it, it was quite amazing. Um, so we, we, you know, I realised it was hopeless we, to try and do that, to clean them. So we got inside with the rest of the chaps. And this uh, happened to the turn where Fred was, Fred Har was, uh, was one of them. A, a, a notorious killer that we had amongst us there in the person of Freddie Har. He was a half-caste uh, and he loved it. I think he got, he derived quite a lot of enjoyment uh, from uh, warfare. But he was an outstanding soldier, but a terribly difficult man to handle. Bloody dangerous. And, uh, I'd known Fred, of course, right from our training days. And I think I probably had more influence with Fred than most people. Um, so Fred uh, said to me, come and give me a hand, and uh, we grabbed a whole case of grenades. Um, and funny things happen when bombing takes place. Buildings will get totally demolished, but uh, sometimes there's a corner left. I remember on one occasion there was a, uh, a building with a, uh, all blown to pieces, and there was just one little corner and there was a toilet sitting on the corner. So it had been the toilet in this building. Uh, and the wall was there with just enough room left uh, of that story to hold the toilet. <laughs> it's the toilet. And this building where these people were had a stairway on. You had to go outside and up a stair. And there was a similar sort of a platform up there. So Fred and I got up there. and. Uh, I was priming the grenades and handing them to Fred and he was firing them and of course the opposing fire was coming in to the building. You could see where they were by the fire and Fred was uh, pretty good with the grenade. He loved that, wouldn't he? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that finished that uh, patrol. And we, we, in the morning, we uh, just getting dark, We someone moved around outside to... Um, and probably Fred too, because Fred never left a watch on a dead German. Um, but uh, one of these, the number two on the gun that had opened on us, he was still alive and he hadn't even been touched. He was so scared he'd just lay there. Um, and so Fred rolled him over and he, he was fully awake and, and alive. You see, we brought him inside and he was 17. 17 years old, and he could speak perfect English, and he was as arrogant as you could wish to get. Boy, yeah. Boy. Mm. He was skiting how they were going to win the war and mm. all the rest of it, and, and um, he, I nearly shot that man in cold blood, but uh, I didn't, thankfully. Mm. Um, what happened to him, we took him back as a prisoner of war, and no doubt he survived. But mm. uh, he was totally indoctrinated with the Nazi. 
Anyhow, when word came through that we had to be evacuated, boy, were the boys pleased. They couldn't get out of there quick enough. We lived on our nerves a lot, and uh, of course a lot of the jokers, they were that, uh, that jittery at, at night time mainly, you know. So we came finally out of casino, and we were a proper mess. Um, in lots of ways, probably morale. Uh, I know my battle dress was just in rags, physically, uh, probably emotionally and everything. We are all longing for a good shower. Normally, um, the clean-up, you know, you, we were always beside a, uh, a stream or what's the name. We, you get incredibly filthy. There's no change of clothing. You never get toilet paper uh, issued to you, so, you know, you get dags on your backside. Um, we got lousy, too. Oh, yeah, we got lousy, of course. Um, the only thing you ever can change occasionally is you've got a spare pair of socks. So, you know, you're in your clothes for weeks on end, living in the dirt, um, and, um, you know, you're in a filthy state. Um, and this time, they, they, the one and only time, they took us to the American showers, and, and they were luxury plus. You know, very different from ours, where we just had... A, a, a cold shower, you know, two or three roses and cold water and a bit of a squirt and they, and they give you a half, uh, you know, a minute to get wet and then a minute to soap up and a minute to wash it off again. And that was our shower. But these were great big uh, long tents with uh, matting on the floor and all heated with braziers and so on. And they give you a bag at the start to put your gear in uh, and the number around your neck corresponding. And uh, this huge, uh, big truck in the middle, just like a huge petrol tanker with a walkway up both sides. Um, and I remember we had to buy our own soap. Um, and uh, I think I had a little square of towel about so big. You couldn't carry stuff, you see. You had the little haversack and you're full of ammo and stuff. Um, and as in the infantry, you know, you, you just can't carry a lot of stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, the big box of soap there, so cake of cake of soap, it must have had a thousand cakes of soap. We couldn't believe it. <laughs> and up, uh, and, and the water's just pouring down on each side of this, and you could stay there, steam everywhere. It was luxury to us. Uh, down the other side and, and there's a big box full of towels so you know take a towel and clean up and then you collect your bag with your, and in the meantime it's been all fumigated kill the lice but you know we had uh, the Americans they had a table down the second with all their gear on it new uniforms and after us they, they would just go and get a whole new and they're incredibly wasteful um, whenever we took over from them, there was all sorts of stuff, uh, firearms as well. And I've still got two American blankets at home uh, that I picked up in casino. Um, and we take them out whenever we have a picnic or something to lay on the ground. Uh, they're nowhere near as good as our blankets because they're, 
their thin and they were sort of a khaki colour. Um, but we only ever had one blanket to sleep with. But of course you keep your clothes on and I used to wrap the blanket around me lengthwise, you know, round and round, like if you laid it out and rolled in like a carpet. So your head and so on is out um, and your feet are out. You've got your boots on. The thing that saved me, I think, from the cold was uh, one of the, not long after we got to Italy, we got a patriotic parcel and one of the parcel I got had two scarves in it and one of them must have been a yard long and, and uh, you know, that sort of width. And so I, I used to wear that against my skin, wrapped round and round and round my body and then my battle dress over the top. And the other one was only a short scarf like this and I, I put it inside my tin hat. And so I think if you, you can keep that part of your body warm and, and your head warm, you know, that's a big thing in, in keeping your energy controlled and so on in the cold. But we, the cold was terrible at times, sleeping on the rock and so on. And the next morning, after we got out, uh, lo and behold, our agent had gone aboard. He decided to get us all up and uh, wanted to do a bit of one-stop too. And of course we could have killed, we could have killed him. So uh, that's how he got his name. We, we, we really loved that guy. We, um, of course, took no more part. Uh, the infantry didn't, but from what I've gathered since, and our tanks actually took part in the breakout from Casino. But uh, wisely, they used the head this time and they didn't try and uh, break out past town. Uh, they uh, went between, um, further to the west, between the Leary Valley and the sea through the hills there that were much less uh, well defended. Um, and they just walked through them because they never expected it there. It was the Polish people, the Polish troops, uh, who occupied and, and took the monastery. Um, but, uh, you know, all the units had a, a hell of a lot of casualties. The Polish cemetery at Casino is up uh, behind the monastery, and it's massive. Um, I went back with my wife, uh, and Bob was there as well, Bob went the official party to the 50th anniversary of the battle. Um, we went with the House of Travel and we had a most wonderful lady as a tour guide who was born in a village just across the valley from Casino um, and uh, could speak a good number of languages and, and we had a wonderful time. Uh, and we were there for all the, semin the uh, ceremonies and so on. And then later on we visited the German cemetery and I remember shaking hands with some of the veterans there. And there's more than 22,000 uh, Germans in this uh, German cemetery. Uh, so they took a punishment, believe me. Mm -hmm. um, but so did the Poles and the Indians and uh, 
yeah, everyone. It, it was, it's been a sticking point for armies right through history. Because, you know, only twice has Italy ever been invaded from the south, been invaded from the north many times, but only twice from the south. So, anyhow, yeah, following that, we, uh, we were in a position then where we could watch the breakthrough. Uh, way up high and we could see the barrages going in for once. We could stand by and uh, uh, and see it all happening. You know what I think of it? I think it was just a, a waste of time. Of course, it, we all know it was a waste of time. Killing a lot of men that, uh, good men. And uh, where did it get us? That's pretty far. I nearly got killed about three times. Buddy bomb shells coming in, you know. I was on duty this night in just before Casino. We had Casino Monastery was up there, and then there was a flat piece of land, and then there was Mount Trocchio, and we were behind that. And I was on duty in the truck with lines out to the different battalions that we were attached to, and they were on terraces in Italy. They used to have their grapevines, you know. And I was on this terrace. And then the lower one, and there's a lower one, and then another lower one. And that was the cook, cook's truck was there, and they had all these hot boxes alongside. And I heard this woof about two o'clock in the morning. And when I got up next morning, all the pieces of hot boxes were entangled in my camouflage net. So I was damn lucky, you know. And. Unfortunately, there they had. We were, we were the front part of the war. Dibsigs, K section Dibsigs, and then they had a B section at the back, where it was the boys that used to dig trenches and whatnot and do maintenance. And this boy came up to get his hair cut, and the bloody shell landed right behind him and killed him. And we were just around the corner. So every now and again they used to send some of the chaps back to Biesh to have a bit of a spell, you know, get away from the shells and whatnot. Well, bugger me, there. we got there and this German plane came over one night and bombed us. <laughs> we all ran for our lives into a big cesspit they had, they dug with it through all the scraps and everything. We thought, oh, B-sex, that's good, we won't get anything happening here. We didn't get bombed up further, you know, it's just pure luck. You know, just pure lucky to get through. Well, we didn't have any battles, really. It was up the, where the infantry were. We were communication, we were back three or four miles, you see. We'd be shelled every now and again. But actual battle, we didn't engage with anyone. It was just the infantry that did that. I, I told you about the road we're driving down to Route 6, and I had to turn, there was a 90 degree. I arrived at the corner at the same time as the shell and the jeep went and I come out of that away with the fairies and uh, minor wounds, minor scratches and from there uh, I don't know if someone picked me up or whether I went back to the MDS or ADS it was, 5th field ADS and I ended up in the three general hospital at Caserta. Caserta was south of uh, 
um, casino um, just north of Naples. Uh, yes, we've got to go back to um, this yeah. hill, hill 175 casino. And when Norm came up to, and as I said, uh, it was totally dominated by uh, the enemy. So all day you're down in Asena. <clears throat> and what do you do with yourself? You're awake a lot in the night, but you sleep. Um, and you think and you clean your rifle and so on, or your Tommy gun as I had. Um, and I start to think I'd always rather like poetry at college, at uh, primary school. So I made up a few verses about uh, the progress, what we'd done so far through, uh, through Italy from over on the Sangro and the Adriatic coast. Um, and I had an old guy in the Sanger with me, a chap named George Hickson. Um, he was in mid-30s. George had done a bit of entertaining uh, back in civvy life and he played a ukulele and part of the ukulele was a cake tin. Um, it had been damaged but he'd salvaged the fingerboard and occasionally we got a patriotic cake in a tin and George had got after the, eating the cake or well, quite often they were all mouldy but um, he'd got the fingerboard attached to the cake tin somehow um, and he used to strum this, this, this thing, and he could tap dance a bit. Um, he is a big guy. Most so I, I, I made the words up and George put it to some sort of a tune, you see. <laughs> it's a little bit like the Yellow Rose of Texas, but <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> you won't ever go out singing it, no one. The eyes capitulated at the end of 43. So we hopped aboard a troop ship and we're bound for Italy. They shall pile this country up in heaps. Ramanga comes in jeeps and we're at the Sangro with the 8th Army. And the eighty-eight were whistling round their ears like angry bees, and the Spandau bullets flying overhead. He threw everything that he could move, except the kitchen stove, and I wonder why the hell we ain't all dead. Now old Butch Freiburg thought we'd better have another crack at old Jerry on the top of Marabella. So we crossed the river one dark night and came in from the back and we took the place right off that wily fella. And the eighty-eights were whistling round the ears like angry bees and the Spandau bullets Flying overhead, he threw everything that he could move, except the kitchen stove, and I wonder why the hell we ain't all dead. At Frontano, Jerry made a stand, and dug himself deep in, and had guns and mortars there to keep us out. 
Old Tiny said, well, never mind. We'll shift him out by then. It was old D Company put that guy to rout. And the, the ADH go whistling round their ears like angry bees. And the Spandau bullets flying overhead. He threw everything that he could move, except the kitchen stove. And I wonder why the hell we ain't all dead. He moved back to Orsonia, and we followed close behind. Our supporting weapons came up just too late. So we had our Christmas dinner way up there amongst the snow and postponed our efforts for a later date. And the aviators go whistling round their ears like angry bees and the Spandau bullets flying overhead. He threw everything that he could move, except the kitchen stove, and I wonder why the hell we ain't all dead. Twas decided that we'd had it on the old Eighth Army front. The Heinies seemed to know our little pranks. So they piled us in the trucks one night and got us on the move across the country there to join the Yanks. And the 88s go whistling round their ears like angry bees and the Spandau bullets flying overhead. He threw everything that he could move except the kitchen stove and I wonder why the hell we ain't all dead. We got over to Casino just a little south of Rome. The digging was too hard so we built Sangers. We took up a Yank position on the side of Mount Cairo and I think we've got old Jerry by the hangers. And the aviators go whistling round their ears like angry bees. And the Spandau bullets flying overhead. He threw everything that he could move, except the kitchen stove. And I wonder why the hell we ain't all dead. I can't finish off the story here as Jerry's holding out but I don't think he can hold out very long. Tiny's jacked up some iron rations that the RAF will drop and about a thousand guns to help us on. And the ADHs go whizzing round there is like angry bees And the Spandau bullets flying overhead He threw everything that he could move Except the kitchen stove And I wonder why the hell we ain't all dead <laughs> That's it! <laughs>
We were all bloody. We were all bloody mad. Eh? <laughs> when we got us here, then it became our platoon song. We could sing better in those days. Oh, Ken, Ken McDonald. He later became the Colonel. He, he was proud of that song, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. episode of Courage and Valour is called After Casino and it follows the New Zealand infantry when they are moved out of the town and into the nearby mountains and hills. In this episode, in order of appearance, you've heard Norm Harris, Pat Green, Ted Bluey Homewood, Colin Murray, Charlie Honeycomb, Clem Hollies, Galvin Garmansway, Harry Hopping, Bob Sanders, Raymond Kerr, Jack Cummins, Bob O'Brien, and Gordon Briggs. <laughs>